Hello, darlings! Welcome back to Lum Squad, a podcast hosted by me, Lum Romiyasha, and Andrew A.C. Yoshimura, devoted to the wonderful Mikey world of Rumiko Takahashi's Yurisei Yatsura. Now, we went back on a high-inspected hiatus again last summer, but hey, you know, this is the second attempt to release Yurisei Yatsura in the 90s, also unceremoniously stopped too. So, you know, as they say, third time's a charm, and at least we've come back for our third try much faster than they did. You didn't have to wait 20 years or six months. But much like this is where the releases of the series, we're dedicated to resuming regular episodes of the podcast on a monthly schedule, mostly on the last Friday of every month, but at the very least by the last day of every month. And... We have a couple episodes already recorded, and we've got a recording schedule mapped out, and with more manga coming out and Discotech bringing over the movies out later this year, there's going to be plenty to talk about. Our plans for the next couple episodes are going to involve catching back up on the manga since we last talked about it. Our previous episode was us covering basically the first five volumes of the new Viz release, and on today's episode, we are going to be covering Volume 6, the first volume featuring newly translated Yurisuyatsu chapters from Viz in over 20 years. Yeah, on this discussion, you're going to hear us discuss the first appearances of prominent characters like Kadatsu Neko, Ryoko Mendao, and of course, the recurring conflict between Tomobiki's students and their teachers, which really goes in the full swing in this volume, as well as some other classic stories playing around with Japanese history and alien biology. And afterward, we're going to dig into one of AC's favorite hobbies. We're also going to do a lot of Yurisuyatsu-related topics on this show, in addition to covering the manga. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about anime cell collecting. AC explains the history of collecting cells and what the Yurisugato cell market is like in particular and some of his favorite gets and most regretful misses over the years. AC's six and tricks of the trade will be sure to help you get a start on building an awesome anime cell collection of your very own. So grab some tasty taiyaki and curl up in your comfiest dotatsu and chill out listening to the return of your favorite Yurisuyatsu podcast, another lively episode of Hashtag Lum Squad. Welcome back to Lum Squad, a podcast devoted to the wonderful wacky world of Rumiko Takahashi's Yurisei Yatsura. I'm Lum Ramayasha. And I'm Andrew A.C. Yoshimura. And today we are covering Yurisei Yatsura Volume 6, and also we're going to talk a little bit about... Animation Cell Collecting. Yeah, Animation Cell Collecting. And kind of the way to... Go about collecting cool cells for yourself. I'll uh, I'll go through some of the. It's kind of this one's particularly my idea and specialty. It's uh, a theme very close to my heart. This one, so 
I might oh, uh, yeah. take the lead on that one, but uh, it will be full of how to how to actually get your hands on Urusei Yatsura cells and how to actually display them as well. Nice. I'm excited to hear it. But do we want to begin with our Volume 6 discussion? Because this is a really big volume for a couple of reasons. I think foremost of which is that with this volume, Wiz Media is finally publishing chapters of Yurusi Yatsura they had not previously translated into English before for the first time in 20 years. That's right. It was, uh, it was a long time coming. This is part of their signature series, so they say they're going to do the whole thing. And they got as far as uh, 11 before, volume 11, effectively. Yeah, volume 11. This book comprises volumes 11 and 12. And the last time they released a volume of Yurusei Yatsura back in the 90s was November 1998. So, yeah, it has been 21 and a half years to this point to get new chapters of Yurusei Yatsura in English. And we've got 12 new chapters, basically, in this volume, because they didn't even do every chapter in Volume 11 originally. They skipped the last one with the Forget the Year Party. Probably yeah, I that- remember that as well, actually, because it was it's, it's, a, it's a very odd chapter, that one. It is really crazy, very <laughs> steeped in Japanese pop culture references, so maybe that's why they skipped it, but also it goes some wild places. And I think this volume, if you haven't already been convinced, really shows just how ludicrous and zany and wild this series can get in a way that is really different from the extremes that you'll find in Takashi's other comedies, like Ranma and Rene, like Ryu Sayatsura, it goes in all sorts of crazy, unpredictable directions. Just pure, unbridled insanity and creativity, and that's why I love it so much. It is It is a bit of a transformative uh, volume, this one, because it, it does kind of change a couple of things about Ryu Sayatsura. And I think Takahashi was just kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. And I think she kind of found something in this in this volume that kind of, she kind of went, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to change a couple of things up a bit, which I think Definitely. was um, very wise on her on her part, actually. I think so. Do we want to talk about kind of the biggest change in traditional element that is presented in this volume? And that is kind of the focus on Tomobiki High as a place where the characters all congregate. Yeah, and this is pretty important because before then, although they had gone to school and stuff happened at school, they were often outside, like uh, at uh, Ataru's house, or you know, we were following Mendo around, or we were you know, following Ataru trying to pick up chicks and all that sort of thing. But in this one, it really focuses on the classroom and even more specifically the teachers. Yes, this is a really critical volume because it introduces the conflict between students and teachers, the adverse relationship they have, the antagonistic relationship between them. And you have and especially chapters. class 2-4. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, our main character's class. And there are several chapters in this volume that is specifically about the students rebelling against the teachers, specifically Onsen Mark, and just the conflict between the teachers and the students and how they don't get along and trying to enforce rules upon them, breaking the rules, everything landing in chaos and no one learning a damn thing. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I love Urusei Yatsura. It's very Looney Tunes. Oh, in a lot yeah. Of, 
uh, in a lot of the way it's presented and, and written and drawn is that it kind of resets back to zero. And sometimes there is some continuity there and not everything's tossed out, but a lot of the time, you know, like Ataru, there's no way that a normal human would survive the stuff that he goes through in like a single chapter, let alone 12 of them. Oh yeah, it's all cartoon logic, especially considering how many times characters are zapped or burned or there's a really great chapter where the students are refusing to speak in Onsen Mark's class because Onsen has made this policy of anyone speaks during class, they're going to have to do summer school classes. So they're refusing <laughs> to speak this whole time, but Ten's coming in, he's trying to get revenge on people for picking on him, and he is annoying the hell out of everyone, he's picking fights, he's blowing up bombs in the classroom, blowing people up, and they refuse to talk, and it's just real awesome chaos there. It is great. Like, he actually uses a grenade, like a yeah, live grenade. A grenade, he tosses it, and they toss it in the corner, and like half the, <laughs> half the classroom blows up. Austin Mark steps on a landmine. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Where does he get this stuff from? I don't know. He's a very resourceful little kid ordering yeah, stuff from kid. space without any adult supervision. He got that catch me love ball thing, which was defective, and he gets all sorts of weird contraptions that cause all sorts of mischief. So let's start with chapter one, um, oh, yeah. Adverse Effects. What I like about this is that it breaks the fourth wall. Yes, I absolutely love this title in page. In the very I first panel, like just on the title page. Yes, I love- They're telling him to get out of bed, <laughs> and Shinobu's going, aren't you going to be in the manga? He goes, ah, you guys get it started, I'll turn up later. Yeah, I just love how meta your Yatsura, the manga, gets how Takashi will- have the characters acknowledge that they are characters in a manga and talk to each other with that knowledge. Like, we talked about it in a previous volume, the chapter where everyone's competing to be the main character, and that's kind of the stuff I love. I love this fourth wall break and stuff. Not taking the world too seriously, everyone just having fun with the medium of the manga. There's a really great visual gag later on in this volume. During that chapter I mentioned where Ten is annoying everyone and they're trying not to speak. Like Ten does this really silly face to provoke a reaction out of the student and we see like ah the text ah inside this kid's mouth like trying to come out and then people like come and push his mouth down <laughs> together to and push the sound effect of ah back inside his mouth so it doesn't come out. Ah such a great visual gag. It is. It only works in in manga as well, and and Japanese people love onomatopoeic um, sounds. Like the, the sounds, the sort. The, so much of the Japanese language is just onomatopoeic sounds language, and it's just fantastic the way that it plays such a big role in a lot of manga, to the point where some people just get tired of trying to translate all of the the sounds, and they just have a little glossary at the back saying, "On this page, it went." Bah, 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 bah. Or go, 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 or something like that. Because people like who do lettering, especially like fan translators, are just getting tired of having to white it all out or block it all out and then put the English stuff in. Oh, yeah. So for this one, um, uh, Sakura is trying to make a love potion. It goes wrong, and she makes a lying potion instead, which is because they were both next to each other in the index. Yeah, uh, and the original course, joke here is that love is ski and lying is usotski. Mm, so, that's right, usotski. Yeah, and they did a Uso. good job of 
Yeah, yeah. And they did a good job of, like, uh, translating that. You know, it is kind of reasonable to assume that love and lying would be next to each other in this index because they're both words that begin with the letter L. Yeah, I think that was a happy accident in this particular case. Like, they didn't have to force it too much, which was good. Yeah, they're not, like, homonyms, like, in the original Japanese, but, like, it worked out and still in a really funny way that carried over in the translation. I love how gullible Ataru is. It's, um, like, Lum tries to force him to eat. He won't eat it and just goes, oh, Sakura made it, and then she just grabs it and eats it immediately. Yeah, she knows how to get him. I really like that. I like the playfulness Lum employs here. In a later chapter, we, during when everyone is trying to eat out during lunch of the teachers trying to stop them, at the last restaurant they go to, Ataru is saying, oh, I only come here to see you. And Lum has ordered this okonomiyaki with like hot chili peppers or whatever and people were and the cook was commenting oh that's a strange order you have strange taste but the reason why she ordered that was so she could stuff it in Ataru's mouth so it would be burned <laughs> and he would run out screaming it was such a great timed gag so resourceful of love i love it uh but this chapter uh specifically this one with the lying potion. I really think there's some great gags in here. My favorite is when Ataru encounters his mom and he tells her, I'm not your real son, mom. And Ataru's mom is like shocked at this for a moment. But then Ataru goes on with the lie saying that, oh, my real mom and dad begged you to care for me in this day before they passed away. And obviously she would have remembered that. So she slowly kind of understands what's up something's weird with him and very perceptively she comments perhaps it's something he ate she knows what's <laughs> up <laughs> she knows and you really see uh in a lot of these chapters just how much ataru is like his mother yeah oh. uh, those like obviously his bad luck and his attitude problem comes from her like his dad is the innocent party and probably the only normal character in all of urusei yatsura who just kind of wants to sit by himself have his sake and read his newspaper and doesn't want anything to do with, with anything that all the wackiness that's going on. But his mum, she's a real piece of work. <laughs> oh yeah, there's some real solidarity between Ataru and his mom. Later on mm. in the chapter that introduces Kanatsu Neku, like Ataru's mom does care that Ataru is not able to come downstairs for dinner, but also, even more specifically, she asks him, Hey, if uh, you and uh, your dad get a divorce. Uh, will you live with me? Like, <laughs> uh. and it was just it was just for that that one thing that uh, his dad did to Sakura. But the end of this is great because Ataru's just basically being Ataru, just lying even more than he normally does. Mm -hmm. But the best thing about this chapter is at the very end, Ataru turns to camera and just said, "Now, have I ever hit on other women? Never." <laughs> so he's actually looking at the audience and pointing to himself. And he's got his heart arm a halfway out of the panel as well. Like he's leaning on it. Another like fourth wall breaking joke, which I love. Absolutely. Just a great coda to not only this running concept of lying and telling such an obvious, you know, lie at the end, at the very contrast to the core of his character, but also continuing the runner of this being quite a meta chapter and characters like not only addressing each other as fellow comic book characters, but also addressing the audience. Really, really good. 
the other great thing about this is just how uh, Shinobu was saying, how awful. I was going to give this to Mendo. And then Cherry just goes, great idea. And Lum goes, sounds fun. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> she just, she loves about- messing with people. I know. That's so great. Lum just loves getting into chaotic mischief. I think it's just her version of fun. She's with Ataru because he's fun. Like, stuff happens around him. Yeah, I mean, especially in this volume, there's all sorts of craziness that happens. So the next chapter is uh, Urgent Prayers, which is uh, basically Ataru is uh, failing, uh, which he is wont to do. Um, so his mother gives him a charm, which is like a... like a, It's a good it's luck a, charm. It is a good luck charm. Um, these are very popular in Japan. You often buy them from... Jingo, um, shrines and temples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could, they have lots of these, like they're a little piece of fabric with something printed on them. And there are many different types. There's good luck for studying. There's good luck for family, good luck for health. There's traffic safety ones as well that you yeah. put in your car. They have one for pretty much every situation. The one Ataru's mom specifically gives Ataru is a Dezaifu, a which is uh, a reference to Sugawara no Michizane, the god of learning. That's who right. shows up. In he does. He's, he's in the charm. And the great thing about this is that Ataru actually put a cheat sheet in there. <laughs> uh, and, that was, and this is actually something that does happen. Like people, uh, because often within the charm, there's like a little piece of paper or something. Uh, and people have been known to put a cheat sheet, especially for mathematics in there. So they try and get it out during the test and stuff like that, but it's such an old, old, old trick that uh, none of the teachers fall for it anymore. Oh, yeah. You know, one thing not totally related to that, one thing that I noticed in the classroom for the first time is that Kosuke sits between Ataru and Lum in, like, the same row of desks, and I have to imagine that's because Omsen knew that if a Tara and Lum were sitting right next to each other, there would never be any studying going on in that classroom. No. <laughs> Not even as much as already going on, which is very little. <laughs> very, very little. And it, it also puts, like, um, Ataru and, and Kosuke next to each other as well. And he features a bit more in this, and you see some more of the interactions between Ataru and Kosuke, which I just... You know I'm a big Kosuke fan. And oh, yeah. he really does come through in this a bit more. Like, you see... They are best friends, but he also has absolutely no trust in Otaru whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I think Kosuke really develops a lot more as a character, too, and in his relationship to Otaru. We did see a lot of him in a, a previous one where, you know, they had the double date at the amusement park. But I think mm. that as the series has shifted more into the classroom, Kosuke's prominence has only increased. That's right. And uh, in this chapter, basically, the, the god of knowledge comes out to try and help him, but he's not actually very helpful, of course, no. because no character in this is. Yeah. They start arguing, and the other characters notice that there's something up, uh, and he tries to go around and copy things, uh, but of course he copies Lum, who just draws on her test paper. She doesn't care about school. She just doesn't. You know, she's already, she's an alien who doesn't only go to school because Ataru is there. So, of course, she's not going to care about tests and stuff like that. Yeah. So, the god is notices her just scribbling random doodles and thinks, oh, is that modern Japanese? And then draws an Atara's test paper. And it's like, golly, modern Japanese is complicated. I do <laughs> like the runner that because this god is so old, he just doesn't understand 
stuff that would be like on a modern Japanese high schooler's test, like translating English. English, yeah. <laughs> He's like, yo, is this code? I don't know code. <laughs> it's interesting that so it seems selectively people can see the god because Kosuke and Mendo notice him, but it doesn't mm. seem like other characters do. Like when he's like flying through the classroom, no one is paying him any mind. Even like when he's like right next to Lum and honored on her desk and on her test paper. So it's very interesting. I think just a lot of people just him. kind of learn to live with all the wackiness that's going on and they just go, eh, it's another wacky lum thing or it's another wacky Atari thing, whatever. Yeah, but um, I mean, but he's Atari like right does get a win paper. at the yeah. end of this. <laughs> he does actually like get to take the tests over because it just looked like he was having a really weird day. I don't know if that's necessarily a win for Taro because he has to take the test again. He still has to take the well, test. Well, yeah, otherwise he'd fail and have to do the grade again. So, <laughs> so it's really? kind of a win. It's, it's, it's a win, a for, win him. for the teachers because if he passes the test, they don't have to deal with him for another year. And that's why they give him a redo. Yep. <laughs> uh, the next one is the Sun Goddess Banquet where actual gods descend. Uh, this is based on a, a legend where... Yeah. The legend during, of Imano uh, Watto. Mm. Yeah. All the gods go to uh, Izumo province, and there are no gods or Buddhas for the rest of Japan. So it's like a a day off for the gods, but that kind of means that anything can happen anywhere at any time, because there's kind of nobody taking care of the humans as well. Uh, And then, of course, the real goddess shows up. Yeah. And she's very bright. Uh, She's the god of light. Uh, and, of course, she has a light bulb on her head. Yeah. She starts off with a 15-watt light bulb, and then after getting annoyed by Lum, she switches it out for a 500-kilowatt light bulb and blinds everyone. And I just love that Lum just already has a pair of sunglasses on them on her yeah. person and just puts them on. Same kind of sunglasses from earlier when they were spying on Karama when, like, Atari was going to study from Karama, I think. Or at That's least right, she's are... wearing a similar outfit to them as yeah. well, I think. Yeah, they're also similar to the glasses when later they kind of dress up as, I believe, Asuka's bodyguards. They have like a similar like sunglasses. Ah, uh, yes. It is. She, she does seem to have a style with those. So, of mm. course, the rest of the gods show up. Uh, and I think in the original legend, the, the goddess of light uh, goes into a cave. So everything is dark. And then they dance and she comes back out and there's light again. Uh, in this one, they want to seal her off for good in her portable blow-up cave so they can keep partying. Yeah, which is a great funny twist. Because like, once she hears the party outside, she's like, oh, I want to come out. Like, people are having fun. But then when they see her peeking out, they're like, just shut the door back down so the party can continue. Yeah. <laughs> I think another thing I really love is that she has an inflatable cave, like a portable inflatable cave, that she has trouble blowing up at first. <laughs> but then she goes in and it even has an occupied open side like a vacuum, which is really great. <laughs> One other fun little thing that I want to point out is that during the judges for the parade, uh, you'll notice you got Hanawa Sensei, you got the principal, you got on some other, but also the watermelon ghost is one of the judges for this parade, which is yeah, a really fun nice little cameo. reference. Yeah, so yeah. Nice, nice little throwback to a previous chapter. He's just kind of sitting around doing his thing. 
I guess one other thing I want to mention is that the title page is a challenge to the reader. And this is something that Takashi seems to be playing a lot more of in this volume is like fun little games for readers. We've got this... You know, read this really fast in one breath challenge. We got like a game board in a later chapter. We got like a panel where you are tested to count like all the horns in it. Like it's a fun little interaction with the audience that I really appreciate. Yeah, I think Takahashi by this stage was onto a good thing, uh, but also wanted to try and change it up and challenge and, you know, try and do something different. Oh, yeah. Obviously, you know, later on, she would have many, many, many other hits. But I think at this particular point in time, she was like, I can't really stop doing Urusei Atsura, so I've just kind of, kind of got to make it fun for myself. <laughs> yeah, I love this playfulness, especially with the audience. Do you want to see me try and read this all in one go? <laughs> you know what? I, I challenge you. All right. Let's see if all I right, can do this right. in one breath. Okay. Go. The legend of Iwano Iwato. Angry at Sasano, god of swords of the sea, for running amok on the plane of high heaven. Amaterasu, goddess of the sun and the universe, hidden the Amano Iwato cave, and darkness fell upon the earth. Troubled, the other gods drew a great banquet outside the cave when Imuse, the goddess of Merit, began to dance. Amaterasu peeks through the door to watch. Takarajiko, god of athleticism, seems to have the opportunity to pride, open the door, and one more light return to the earth. Oh, very good. <laughs> I read that fast, but I think that I... You did take a breath, yeah. but that's okay. I'm, I'm not going to fault you too much for that one. I probably won't do that because <laughs> I'm not wearing my glasses. But next, we've got a really great chapter. The yeah, the great off-campus snack battle. And this uh, is fantastic. Um, in the original... in Sorry, this is the original. In the anime, this is a pretty famous... Um, chapter or yeah. episode as well. I actually just rewatched an anime version of this and it's also a ton of fun, but uh, yeah, this again, I think this is like one of those first chapters we're seeing like the students versus teachers conflict really in full swing and we even get like the student disciplinary committee, basically the class traders of the class yeah. working and of for course Mendo is, is heading them up and yeah. like you can there's like a, a great panel where he's kind of half in shadow and his eyes kind of glint when they're saying, oh, yeah, we're going to sneak out and we're still going to go get our snacks. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Mendo's reading a book and listening in because he's such a swat. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, it's a great chapter of them just trying to go and eat out of outside of the school. This is, uh, this is a very old concept uh, because it did used to happen a lot more, but school rules uh, say you're not allowed to leave uh, campus when school is on, and that's enforced a lot more strictly now than it used to be, pretty much for this reason, actually. I once taught at a school that was right next to a 7-Eleven, and they have to use to place wow. two teachers at the gate to make sure nobody snuck off to the convenience store at lunchtime or recess. <laughs> hey, this is based in reality, then. At least it is very much so. reality. I'm sure no one's dressing up as a Maneki Neko and I'm <laughs> on the top of the shelf to jump on a table and scare students in a cat costume. <laughs> oh, god! So this is good just because it really does play up the teachers versus students. It's got just how dirty the teachers are willing to play. Yeah. And they can get away with anything because they basically say, it's okay, I'm a teacher. Uh, and even one, one of them gets arrested, which is pretty yeah. good. Onsen gets arrested because a friendly neighborhood reporter 
points out that he's a weirdo dressed in a Maneki Neko costume. <laughs> and then when they go to tank him, he says, Haha, no need to tank me. I masquerade as a passing journalist, but the truth is, I rep the Tomobuka shopping district. And he's basically a Superman-like figure, but instead of an S, there's a TSD for Tomobiki Shopping District <laughs> on his chest. It's just a really funny Superman gag. <laughs> it is It is pretty good, and Superman would have been quite popular at the time, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dr. Slump at the same time had, of course, Superman. Ah, uh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, he gets, he gets clocked the next panel over even like he looks like a superhero and then all the students run past him and like basically knock him into a storefront oh yeah a lot of people get run over in this chapter including like a very old teacher that the other teachers think has passed away even though he's saying hey i'm not dead yet quit insisting on my that so this is this is a fantastic chapter and really does kind of start off the students versus teachers of uh tomobiki high and I think um, it also kind of shows how, like, Mendo is just this two-faced prick, basically. Like, yeah. all, the, all the male students already know it, and he's always willing to let the female students go. But because he's head of this, um, the morals committee, he always thinks so highly of himself. And that comes into play in a different chapter as well. Yeah. Uh, when, of course, he thinks, oh, yes, I'm, I'm head of this, but I won't betray the students because it's a pretty girl. Yeah, there's a very similar chapter later on with the tea shop that I really like. But to point out one of those gags in this chapter, it, yeah, he lets the girls go because, oh, I'm a defender of women. Go right ahead. But I love the gag of the male students then cross-dressing to also be <laughs> let go. And one of the other students in this morals committee alongside Meadow is like a very Magane looking figure. I mean, he has glasses. His hairstyle is similar to Magane's, except it's yeah. a little more combed over, which is interesting, but he has like this thing is like, oh, girls, if you squeeze my hand, you can go. And so <laughs> then Kosuke, you know, turns out against him by shaking his hand when he cross-dresses, which is very funny. I love that. I just... Like his personality is nothing like Magane, but um, the look is certainly there. And there is a there is a particular person in Japanese high schools that has that look, and you would often find that sort of person on the morals committee. Mm. And these these are a thing. Like these morals committee, not a thing in Australia, because we have no morals. <laughs> like schools are are super not well organized in Australia. Uh, but my wife actually used to be part of like um, the moral hygiene committee in high school. And she would have to like, you know, stand at the gate and make sure everyone had a handkerchief and like their skirt was the right length and all that sort of stuff. And I couldn't stop laughing at this. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> There's just no way that that would ever pass the mustard in Australia. These people would be beaten to an inch of their life if they tried <laughs> to do something like that in this country. Yeah. I don't think uh, people look too kindly on teachers' pets. No. Uh, next chapter five. Um, yeah, copy and this is copy the day. This is the start of a string of Rand chapters that bring her back in a big way to the point that the original Viz release of Volume Eleven back in the nineties as a Return of Lum Volume Eight. They titled it Ron Attacks, probably in reference to the fact that there are a lot of Ron stories in this volume. She kind of comes back after quite a long absence 
in volume five where she barely appeared. Now she's kind of back as part of the main cast more regularly. Yeah, we should probably talk about all of these at once, you know, because we're going to run too long if we do focus on every chapter too much. But it's almost like Takahashi just kind of remembered, oh, yes, that's right. Run exists. Let's use her again for a while. Yeah. She's a fun character. And so they reintroduce her and it just, she just runs with it for a while. And then yeah. probably gets bored with it and, and focuses on something else. Yeah, the first one's great because Ataru is uh, duplicated and he mm-hmm. actually has a date with Shinobu. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that she's just using him to get a free movie watch and experience out of it. But yeah. later on, she is actually kind of protective of Ataru when she encounters Lum and she kind of like shields Ataru from Lum. It's yeah, kind of interesting. It's a throwback to the earlier chapters when she was much more into him. And she does get over Ataru and indeed Mendo by the end of the series as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, like she's, there's still something there. Like there's still, you know, they were friends and they were even dating for a while. So yeah. you still see flashes of the original Shinobu now and again, yeah, which I really like. She's entertaining different options. In the mm. first chapter we discussed about the La Potion Line Potion, there is a point where Otaru is like flirting with Shinobu and saying, oh, you are the only person I've ever really loved. And she's like, oh, is that true? And it's like, she's kind of like into the idea, maybe that Otaru is mm. in love with her. And then later we'll discuss the, you know, Catch Me Love Ball chapter, but she is kind of into the idea of maybe hooking up Sabame, which is interesting. She just goes, oh, it's destiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to fight it. This is a better option than Ataru. Yeah, yeah. There are there are better options out there, I guess. Um, so Ataru gets duplicated. One of the dupes goes on a date with uh, Shinobu. But what I love is when Lum duplicates Ataru, uh, the other Ataru ties up Lum and then unties his duplicate. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is fantastic that they just work together immediately right off the bat. Like, they know the score, they know what's going on, they know it's another crazy Lum thing, so they automatically just, like, tie up Lum instead. Yeah. That's really, really good. It's like she unties the the ropes of the duplicate and the duplicate just immediately ties her. I also yeah. like how all the duplicates have, like, a little prime symbol on yeah them. that's like, great it's just floating off top of their heads you gotta wonder is it made of hair is it just like some weird symbol object like it's you really it's funny. a prime symbol like in yeah. math and then shinobu just goes with it she's just like ah, i'm not asking more questions let's go to the movie <laughs> one other note i have about this chapter that i found interesting is that they use like a bit of slang for when ron is acting you know very brash and rude like she's mm. saying, yeah, and dimwit, and you're, and language like that. But that's only exclusive to this chapter in the translation. In the other chapters, when Ron is acting like in her brash, rude, angry self, she's not using like kind of slang like that. So yeah, I find that that's very interesting. interesting. Because I think when you use words like that, often it's written as a Kansai dialect or Kansai Ben. Yeah. So people from the Kansai region often have more, uh, are more expressive with their words. They will say, there will be much more connotation within their speech patterns. And so sometimes Kansai people to Kanto people, who are like people from Tokyo, Saitama, Chiba, Guma, 
they might seem more rude. So I think sometimes uh, mangaka use that to their advantage and just say when people are angry or more expressive, they use kind of more of the kansai ben. But I'd have to actually go back and read the original Japanese to confirm whether that's what they meant in that particular case. But Yeah, um, I'd be interested because it is curious that this is a translation choice that really only applied to this chapter, not the other the chapters of the volume. And I'm just hmm. wondering why that was. It was just like maybe not a consistent uh, oversight. I, I really don't know. Yeah, it is interesting. And the same person has been translating the whole thing from the start. So maybe they just did a direct translation of, of how she was talking in, yeah. in the original manga. And I'm looking at the 90s translation and they don't use language like that. They don't have Ron talking like that at all. It's like no difference in how she talks when she's polite and when she is rude. Mm. It's very interesting. I'd really have to read the original manga. I, I should just buy a set. I really should. Like, I have some of the uh, original manga in Japanese. At one stage, I did have the whole set, but when I moved from Japan back to Australia, I didn't keep them. But it shouldn't be too hard to get them next time I'm back in Japan because used books are big business over there, especially used manga, like secondhand manga. So I should I should just bite the bullet and just get a whole set of this stuff. By the mm-hmm. end of this chapter, of course, it's Looney Tunes style. There are lots of Atarus running around. They all get tricked and they're all chasing hot women. What happens to the dupes? Who knows? Doesn't matter. Chapter yeah. ends. Everything goes back to square one after this. Oh, yeah. I like that. And when, at, towards the end, Ron has to hide in a trash can. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. And at one point, Lum is run over by a stampede of the Atarus too. So, a lot of great physical just, gags in this. I just like, just neutralize the original. Is it like runs? <laughs> what? Like a bad runs smell? Idea. <laughs> <laughs> what does she mean by neutralize? The next one, uh, Those Were the Days, uh, PC. Yeah. Uh, this is like a little personal robot who uh, tries to attach himself to Ataru to make him do bad things so Lum will leave him, except that there is absolutely no difference yeah. to the way that the little bot controls Ataru and how what Ataru was going to do anyway, which was go out and hit on chicks. Well, actually, I think Ataru acts more polite with the personal controller <laughs> on him. He's like, oh, nothing. He actually acts a little bit feminine, too, in his uh, body language, which is interesting. Like He does. <laughs> arguably, the personal controller makes him more of a genial person. <laughs> <laughs> this thing looks like cool spot to me. Yeah. I mean, in the anime version of this, I definitely remember this guy having like, like more of a hard-boiled kind of voice. You know, like he's yeah, supposed to be kind like of like a, a detective or like a yakuza or something like that, like kind of like a gangster. Yeah, definitely. One of the interesting things is that this is one of the last chapters to actually be adapted in the original 195 episode run of the show. This is episode 193 of the anime. And here oh. it is in volume 11. So this is like one of those chapters that they waited a long time to finally adapt. We actually meant earlier, we mentioned the chapter uh, with Amaterasu. That's the last episode of the show. So kind of interesting to see like these two chapters, like a third of the way into the manga, but towards the end of the show and the anime. Yeah, it's um, I think to- they obviously overtook the manga when they were doing, you know, producing the um, the anime after a while. 
And there was a lot, especially towards the end of the anime, where they just, they had one concept and they had to stretch it out for an entire episode. Mm-hmm. There is one episode uh, where Onsen Mark is thinking of retiring and they have a nine minute training montage <laughs> of him. Like it almost takes up half the entire episode of him training with Cherry and there's like hardly any dialogue and he's just trying to reach Nirvana. Mm. Um, the next chapter is um, Hornless. It's a cute hornless. little ten chapter yeah. where Ten loses his horn. This is where we learn a really interesting about Oni biology. In that, you know, as the Oni characters grow, they lose their horns, kind of like deer, and then they grow yeah, back. Yeah, they molt. Yeah, they molt. And yeah, so Ten loses his horn in a scuffle with Atari. When Atari is trying to take advantage of Ten being powerless, because without his horn, he can't breathe fire. He can't fly. And so he's trying to attack Ten during this time, but Lum protects him by, you know, just carrying him around with her. Ron, however, ha- sees a horn, like, leave from, you know, the window of the Morboji residence. And it's like, oh, is this Lum's horn? If Lum's without her horns, that means she's powerless and I can get my revenge on her. So there's a <laughs> great misunderstanding there. And yeah, just a comedy of utter errors where like Ron gives like this uh, little sticker thing to put on the spot where the horn is to help it grow back faster, allegedly. But actually what it does is it makes it grow as a cactus in the spot. So <laughs> when she goes over to the Moriboshi house later and sees that Lum's horns are totally fine, she's like, whoa, what happened? Does Lum know? Is she onto me? And so she's totally spooked by how friendly Lum is and thinks that she's going to try and poison her. And so totally suspicious of her whole the time. Meanwhile, Ten has a cactus growing out of him and gets picked on by Ataru until the cactus finally falls off. He gets his horn back and Ataru gets what's coming to him. Yeah, it's difficult to feel bad about Ten because he's just such a little prick all the time. So I kind of don't blame Ataru for taking his revenge. But this is is an important chapter continuity-wise because it explains that um, Oni... When they lose their horns, they lose their powers. Mm-hmm. And this happens at the very end of Urusei Yatsura yeah, as well. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and Lum does lose her powers, and it happens in the fourth movie. Uh, wow. And so it's it's important for and which is was never part of the manga or anything like that to begin with. So yeah, it's important yeah. for both continuities. Uh, it's also important that we finally find out some other interesting facts about Oni, um, as you said, Oni biology. So it's also kind of like a like it could be like a, a a growing up thing as well. Like the horns fall out, they don't have powers, but it eventually comes back. You know, there's uh, you know I'm sure the th- same thing happens when they're going through puberty, etc., etc. Et so it's just an interesting thing, and I really love finding out more about the oni, just as a as a people or as a race, mm-hmm. uh, because you you find out so little because you know obviously Urusei Yatsura is about. Uh, you know, a parody of Japanese culture more than anything else. But the, the Oni are like a very strong, almost gangster-like people, a warlike people who go and try and take over other planets. But they still yeah. have this side of them which does make them vulnerable or does make them very different to humans, which I find fascinating. Yeah, it leads to some great story ideas. Actually, in the 
first volume, oh, it was like the ribbons that Ataru gave Lung that made her unable to fly. But that's also interesting, like, covering up the horns in that way also had an effect. Yeah, so it kind of comes down to the one difference that Oni have between humans is that they have horns. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be the source of their power. So if you seal that off, then the rest of it's sealed off as well. Yeah, it's a really cool fact about them. Uh, One of the other things I want to mention about the chapter is that this also has the gag where... When Ron finds the horn, like a bunch of other horned creatures are stampeding in this big panel, and Takashi challenges the reader to count how many horns are on the page. By my count, there are 63. But <laughs> I don't... actually counted, of course he did. Yeah, but I have to wonder, did Takashi want me to count the two panels before this one big panel that also have horns and the horn in them from 10? Yeah, it actually says count on count on this page, yeah. not this panel. And if that's the case, if it's like the full page, then it would be 65. But I also think it's really funny that during the stampede of animals, like somehow there's a narwhal stampeding? How is that <laughs> thing like running? Is it swimming through the air? But also really funny is like there's this alien Santa Claus on a sled being pulled by reindeer. There's like this penguin with like this pig-looking creature on its back. There's yeah, like a, a serpentine, or something. Yeah, there's a serpentine dragon, and then there's this weird alien rhino, in contrast to, like, a regular-looking rhino also there, or maybe it's supposed to be a dinosaur. And there is, there's Pinocchio up there as well. Riding a uh, camel, and, and a bear. Yeah. A cute little bear, And too. a snail, and a, 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 a rabbit, almost said Usagi, mm. which doesn't make any sense because they don't have horns. So it's, no. it was an interesting challenge. You win nothing, but uh, I think Takahashi just wanted to draw all these animals. <laughs> That's what I love also, that Takahashi will cram panels full of all these weird creatures and designs just to create this scene of chaos. It's just one of the things I absolutely love about Yurisi Atsura is that the world is just so full of crazy creatures. And interestingly, a narwhal doesn't have a horn. They're actually teeth rather than oh, horns. Oh, my gosh. So I, you know, that could oh, be a I trick a there trick. or it could just yeah. be a narwhal. <laughs> uh, so the next chapter is studying mayhem, which is basically yeah. it's uh, free study time, study hall, which is just where you there's a period where you're meant to stay in the classroom and study and nobody ever studies during no, study hall. of course not, especially not during this study session when Ray comes to visit. And this is a big deal because this is, like, Ray's introduction to, like, the full class of Tomobuki, including Mendo and Kosuke, I think, also meeting Ray for the first time. Uh, Ray's introduction into this chapter is also fun because Ten's talking to him on a transmitter. It's a pun on, you know, Ten's theme is obviously, you know, like the number Ten and Ray's name is in Japanese, like, Zero. So mm-hmm. it's like 10 to 0, and of course, Ray drops in. Oh, Channel Ray. And then they say Ray. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, really doesn't translate so well into no. English, uh, which is why the, the notes at the back of this uh, make more sense. But I just, what I love about this is the way that Takahashi draws Ray when he's human so handsomely. And then often when she draws him as the tiger bull, she draws him almost sloppily. Like, yeah. um, like very kind of fat, uh, you know, not particularly detailed with like kind of roundish eyes with just simple dots in the middle. 
So you've got this contrast between Ray being the big dumb tiger bull and then when he goes back to Hume, he just kind of says, yes, face, and he's more handsome than Mendo. And mm. she draws him super detailed. Yeah, yeah. One of the great recurring gags in this is like, what makes the man? And Mendo is like, the face <laughs> makes the man. Other classmates are like, oh, the heart makes the man. And then when Mendo sees Ray's pretty face, he has kind of a shock. And then he regains his composure and says, no, it's money that makes the man. He's got to find something to lot it over ray in order to regain his sense of superiority which is very funny i also really love the panel where you know it's a very cartoony looking ray holding like a mirror and like a <laughs> pipe and just the text just another pretty face <laughs> i love that as well because that's that's a very me panel i think it's just something that really connects me to that uh and of course, um, like Ran tries to feed him, uh, and she th- and he thinks it's really good. Uh, and of course, Cherry pops up for absolutely no reason other than to like torment Ran. Oh yeah, because Ran feeds you know a handmade lunch that is very nice looking to Ray. He eats it very slowly, and that makes her feel good. But then Cherry pops up with just a box full of trash that he's just collected. Really, just some random stuff, not arranged very prettily at all. And Ray also pays it the same amount of care and attention. <laughs> Which is, I just love that. Cherry popping up for absolutely no reason is a running gag in Urusei Yatsura, especially the close-up. He'll just suddenly appear full-on face and everyone just dives for cover. Mm. And he, at the end of this chapter, Ray goes home because he's hungry. Yeah, after all he just he flies did off because he's hungry. was eat during this entire chapter. He just leaves because he's more hungry and there's more food to be eaten elsewhere. So chapter nine, there's a stray cat. Oh, sorry, there's a cat on the stairs. Oh, uh, yeah, this no, is a big one. This is introducing another recurring character, and that's Kitatsu Neko. Not really named as such in this chapter, but obviously the name comes from what happens in this chapter, mm. where Ten encounters Kitatsu Neko just eating taiyaki out in the cold wind, invites him home. Kitatsu Neko sees a Kitatsu that the Morbushi is for planning to throw away, and is on the stairs, so he just starts sitting under the katatsu on the stairs, and it prevents Ataru from coming down for dinner. They call Sakura and Cherry to try and get Tiatsuneko out, and they learn his backstory that when he was alive, he was just like an alley cat. He went into people's homes to try and get under the katatsu, and no one would let him, and so the implication is that he was left out in the cold to die in the streets alone, but he's resurrected as, you know, this ghost cat, and now he's under Katatsu, and the big punchline is, this whole time while he's on the stairs, the Katatsu wasn't even plugged in! It wasn't even <laughs> heated! So instead, he moves into Atari's room, which doesn't solve the fundamental problem for Atari, because <laughs> the cat is still around, and he sticks around. He does. He just The ghost cat just kind of hangs out, uh, and often with the principal, which you see later yeah. on in this in this volume as well. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that we see Kitata Neku kind of integrated into the cast kind of pretty immediately there. And especially like his friendship with the principal is just a thing that kind of happens. Like he yeah. just shows up in the principal's office. He shows up sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is interesting because Kitata Neku is also kind of plays a pretty big role in the anime as well. Mm. If, um, if 
Lum is the breakout character of Urusa Yatsura. Kotatsu Neko is probably the mascot in some uh, yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. Every Takahashi series has to have like a cute animal mascot, and Kotatsu Neko mm. definitely plays that bill. And I think that's kind of another reason that Kotatsu Neko sticks around. I kind of forget yeah. the aspect that he is supposed to be living in Ataru's room for a lot of the time because later on in the series, he mostly hangs around the principal or Cherry. But yeah, in this volume, we definitely see him kind of stationed in Ataru's room for a couple chapters. It's really fun. In fact, in his second big appearance, like they actually pointed out, yep, he's still here. He's around. And uh, this is this is one of those things where Lum kind of says, oh, you're trapped upstairs forever with me. <laughs> and she gets this super creepy look on her face. They go, don't worry, I'll take care of you, darling. I go out the window and just zaps him. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like a misery style enthusiasm of having someone confined in your room. It really is. And whenever she's got that creepy look, you always see her fangs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, of course, at the end... Um, Lum is just kind of going, hmm, she's disappointed oh, that he yeah. wasn't trapped upstairs just, forever. Like, snaps her fingers in disappointment. I, I would have so gotten great. away with it if it wasn't for that meddling monk yeah, sort yeah. of look from Scooby-Doo. I guess one other note about Kadatsu Neko I want to bring up is that apparently when he was alive, he could talk. But in the present day, like, he doesn't really speak much. He's not a cat of many words. Though no, he's not. Definitely he, just he kind says of hangs around Tomobiki. Yeah, though he does say a few lines here, like at the end of the chapter, he says, my Katatsu, or maybe he's thinking mm. that himself. And then later he does say, hey, I'm still here in his second appearance. So in the anime, Which definitely is probably more, more of a silent. nod to the audience than anything else. Yeah, yeah. It's probably just something as like, you know, kind of visual signifier for the reader. Whereas in anime, you would have to make that more, you know, audible as something said and definitely Katatsuneko is does not really speak in the anime from my recollection. No, no, never. Uh, I think he does make grunting sounds occasionally. Um, so the next chapter, chapter 10, Pickled is pretty important. Uh, once again, it actually has to do with Oni biology. Mm-hmm. That when they eat pickled plums, they get drunk. Which is, a f- it's fantastic. Have you actually ever had one of these before? I haven't. They are super sour. Uh, They're good. And uh, we have some in the fridge right now, I think, actually. Uh, My wife likes to have them. They are very, very sour, like soaked in vinegar and everything like that. And they are often, like, as it looks in the book, you put them in the center of rice in a bento, and it adds a bit of flavor. And -hmm. they're like a... a plum, and it still has the seed in them, but they're... because they've been soaked so long, they've kind of shrunk. And they're they are good to give to people who aren't familiar with them just to see the expression they have on their face. <laughs> and obviously Takahashi took this one step further to say that this is how they get drunk. Mm. Um, you know, they are intoxicating to Oni. So Ten gets drunk first. And then, of course, you know, starts breathing fire over everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean mostly Ataru. Uh, and then Lum gets drunk, uh, takes off all her school clothes. It's kind of strange just how kind of excited they all are, around. considering that Lum normally just wears her bikini outside the classroom. But like, and this is you- one of the things that kind of, like, this translation is good, but there was just a bit more flavor in the original one here. Uh, Shinobu here in this one says, oh, for crying out loud, what are you doing when she's taking off her clothes? But in the 
original 90s translation, she goes, what are you guys getting so excited about? She goes around like that anyway. Yeah. Like it's actually pointed out. And I, I love that little translation flair they had that they just kind of added in in the 90s version. Yeah, definitely a liberty because they use boat balloons to express that sentiment. Whereas in the original, it's two different characters. You know, when this random girl making comments mm. and the other girl is just saying Lum's acting funny. But yeah, I like that. <laughs> that extra bit of, you know, meta humor in the original translation. It's it's kind of funny that that Ten is a fun drunk and and Lum is not a fun drunk. Yeah, she's kind of a sad, erratic drunk. Like she yeah, gets, she's an emotional drunk. She cries when she thinks Adaru cares more about him than her. Then she later tells him to drop dead, and then like a page later, is saying, "Oh, darling, I'm so glad you're alive." <laughs> <laughs> All over the place. Uh, and of course, this this ends with. Um, Onsen Mark looking for alcohol because she's drunk and Cherry actually had some. And so they're trying to force Mendo to dance naked, which is what he promised if he actually found alcohol. So <laughs> uh, you don't actually see him dance naked, but um, the last panel is the other boys trying to strip Mendo naked. Yep. And that was the last panel of the last chapter. English manga readers would be able to read for 21 and a half years until now with the next chapter. So the the um, the graphic novels weren't the only way to get Urusei Yatsura back in the day. They also actually published two chapters in a time in comic book form. And I remember getting my hands on that last chapter. And I'm like, oh, Urusei Yatsura, I'll pick that one up. And it actually had a note in there saying, oh, thank you so much for reading, but we're going to stop this translation now. And I was so disappointed. <laughs> it's so strange because this volume of the 90s version, it ends with a to-be-continued on the last page on this mm. chapter. And it's like, no, they didn't continue it in this uh, same translation team Not in that century. Release. No. <laughs> yeah, literally the next century, two decades later, it would continue. <laughs> but <laughs> So the next chapter, um, forget the year party. Uh, this is a reference to something that, uh, especially school children, sometimes office parties would happen as well, uh, where, uh, kids would get together in December, uh, to celebrate the end of the year and try and forget all the bad stuff that happened, which in this case is a lot of bad stuff. Uh, of course, Lum misinterprets this and creates a fourth dimensional sort of men and women almost looks like a bathing area where they go in and they forget who they are. They pick up costumes. They dress as uh, particular characters and they interact with each other as those characters. So there is Sherlock Holmes, who is Mendo. Mm -hmm. And there is uh, Zenigata, uh, who is a famous... So you might be familiar with the name Zenigata from Lupin, who was the detective, but Zenigata is a famous uh, de Japanese detective from a lot of novels mm -hmm. and he was also which were later adapted into uh film and television and manga and all that sort of stuff but that's where the name originated in a sense you could consider him the japanese holmes i guess in terms of the all the fiction about him mm. it's uh it, it's very famous it's basically their version of sherlock holmes uh, i have seen some of the movies uh they japan when they like a character 
they'll run it into the ground, especially mm. if it's um, not copyrighted. Uh, oh, yeah. So this is an interesting and very kind of bizarre chapter. There are elephants in here. You know, they try and catch women bathing. Lum is a genie who grants wishes. The wishes go wrong because Ataru doesn't specify. And then, of course, they all exit at the end and uh, everyone's forgotten everything, including the forget party. So she plans to do it all over again. (laughs) I love that. They literally forget that they drew the party. And so Fishy's going to repeat itself. I do like um, that in this volume that Ataru is just like, I know what's about to happen here. I want out. I want nothing to do with what's about to happen. <laughs> so he tries to escape, but everyone pulls him in. Like, so Ataru has learned that like Lum is going to completely misunderstand and everyone else just goes along with it. So Ataru is showing some smarts here. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter 12, A Strange New Year at the Mendo Estate. Now, this is a really bizarre chapter. Yeah, and we're entering volume 12 here too, so completely new volume. First time in English. But yeah, this is a chapter that really shows off how crazy the Mendo family is, which is interesting because this is just a few chapters predating Ryoko showing up. But yeah, I mean, basically they're all attending Mendo's house and it's set up like a crazy trick house unbeknownst to them. And so they're just moving across these different rooms and being fed paralysis potions. They put get put on conveyor belts that bring them back to the front to do the room again. It is really crazy. It's, it is bizarre. And even Mendo is surprised in this chapter. Like, he doesn't know what's going on either. And basically, his family is just playing a trick on them. So uh, one of... At the end of this chapter, it's revealed that basically this is a giant board game. The The idea is to try and get to the finish line like you would in um, Snakes and Ladders or something like that. Mm. And the reason for this, this joke might be a little bit lost in translation, but often on New Year's Day in Japan, uh, it is a time to play games. So there are many different types of games. Um, but, uh, like, the Game of Life is a popular board game in Japan for whatever reason, because I hate that game. Oh, no. I play that a lot as a kid. It's super popular over there. And uh, there are traditional Japanese games which you can play. And this is why they're all dressed up in their kimonos, because it's New Year's. Oh. And the previous chapter was December, close to Christmas. So, of course, uh, these are seasonal. Like, this is happening around that time of year. Uh, and when they get to the finish line, they're basically shut out of the mansion. <laughs> <laughs> and reading this chapter again, I super thought that Ryoko was going to be behind everything. Yeah, because in the anime version, she is a part of it. This was another one of those chapters that was added very late into the anime's run, like in the 180s. So by that point, yeah, they rewrote it so that Ryoko was involved. But yeah, in this mm. one, it's just the parents and the grandpa who's like making shenanigans happen. I like that Mendo's dad says, oh, I'm doing something more interesting than golf. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, yeah, they were just fucking with him the whole time, which I just think is fantastic. And it is, the joke is revealed on the last page that it is a board game. Yeah. So you can actually play this game. There's like the, the start, the front entrance. You can, you can cut out the playing pieces of, uh, Ten, Lum, Mendo, Shinobu, and Ataru. So you could actually play this game if you wanted to. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a fun time. I mean, I wouldn't want to cut up the actual page because it would, you know, destroy the, the volume. But, yeah. you know, you can photocopy it and then do it, which would be a ton of fun. Yeah, I wouldn't mind playing this game, actually. Uh, chapter 13, Tales of a Wandering Snowman. This is a bit of a, a weird chapter where a snowman comes from outer space. I assume it's not really specified either way. Yeah, he just kind of falls from the sky. It's just an alien snowman, it seems. But, you know, mm. Ataru protects him from being, you know, melted, melted. by Ten's fire breath because the snowman kind of dropped right in on Ten and that made Ten mad. And so the snowman is like following Ataru around during the chapter trying to pay him back and Ataru is completely in disbelief that there is a moving snowman that is around despite what Slum's saying, what the class is saying. Eventually the snowman overhears Ataru, hoping that he could be haunted by a cute babe instead of a snowman. And so the snowman kind of creates this illusion of being a cute babe, but it's an illusion only for Ataru because Lum and Ten just see the snowman and see the things that the snowman is like creating as illusions for Ataru, like the soup and uh, the table and and the dancing rabbits. Dancing rabbits, like the <laughs> snowman is actually making snow rabbits, but it's mm. but Ataru is imagining something completely different yeah you're right the chapter ends kind of in a strange way that i don't know how to feel about because ataru like kind of jumps the snowman as the girl <laughs> and then the snowman breaks the illusion and then just ups and leaves yeah it, it's hinted that ataru is inebriated by this stage like it, yeah. it, he acts like he is uh, and it's all an illusion, but he's just basically like got hypothermia at this point. Yeah, at the end, because he'd literally been eating snow and he stayed out in the cold. Like he took off his jacket because he thought it was warm because of the illusion, but it was still like snowing and really cold. So he's in bed sick in the last panel. But yeah, I, it's a weird note to end on because it feels kind of sad. Like the snowman just wanted to repay Ataru's stroll this, but at the end, like it, it's almost like Ataru kind of betrays the snowman by like you know, really violating its personal space and trust by jumping it. So mm. it's like, man, I, I don't know how to feel about that. That's I mean, Ataru is a piece of shit, like when you get down to it. Yeah. <laughs> and he's I mean, not he's not a character who should exist in modern times, especially. He's certainly a product of a of a particular time and space in manga history. Yeah. I mean here especially. Yeah. Uh the I really like the snow bunnies here. Um so this is a actually a pretty popular thing to do in Japan. Like they make snow snowmen of course as well in Japan, uh Yuki Daruma. But they also make snow bunnies, which is kind of where you get a clump of snow and you stick two leaves in it and like two berries as eyes and they look like little rabbits. Uh and it's like a simple sort of snow sculpture you can make yourself and my daughter loves doing that. Mm. And they, they look very cute to the point where my wife takes them and puts them in the freezer to preserve them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is really cool. I guess I have, well, I guess I have two little notes about this chapter that I do want to talk about. Is that yeah, sure. I really like that this chapter has a lot of nighttime seeds with snow falling and it looks really beautiful. Like, to 
do nighttime scenes is really hard, so you often see manga artists, especially weekly manga artists, try to avoid doing it. But also to mm. add like inclement weather falling on top of that is difficult to portray. But I really love these snowfall scenes; they look really gorgeous. Takashi has great shapes for the snow, and I think it looks really well. Uh, and also. This is the chapter that shows that Katatsu Nako is still in the room, and he says, like, I'm still here. In a, like, small He's speech still story. around, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is the chapter that cements that Katatsu Nako is not just a one-off, he's sticking for the long call. I think um, sometimes, like, when you get a character like that that's super popular, even pre-internet days, people would write in and say, oh my god, I love this, oh, this is so great, and the author would catch wind, oh, hang on, people really connected to this character, so I suppose I'll keep using them. And I think that's what happened with Kotatsuneko. I'd believe Probably it. the fact that pretty easy to draw and pretty big, so, you know, takes up a lot of background space. Yeah. I'd believe it, especially since there was a couple chapters between his first appearance and this reappearance, so maybe readers really did respond well and uh, wrote in that they want to see more, and Takashi decided to include him more. So chapter 14, The Coffee Shop Ban. Yeah. So the well, I love uh, the title page of this, where it just says, I don't have a role in this story. Like, Lum is just having some tea saying, I don't have a role in the story. She is still in it, and she does a couple of things, but she makes it a point to say, I'm not the main character in this. I don't really have much of a role other than trying to electrocute Ataru. Yeah, she doesn't have much bearing on the plot. She appears in the first visit to the coffee shop, but not in the rest of the chapter, except for a great gag where she comes out of nowhere just to shock Ataru and says, hey, mm. I I had to do this because otherwise I would barely have a role in this chapter. <laughs> and I, I tweeted this um, out saying, well, yeah, good, because, you know, it's Ataru's story, not, <laughs> you know, like, Ursa Ataru is about Ataru. And the amount of people who came back and said, I wouldn't read if it wasn't for Lump and stuff like I that mean, was really funny. <laughs> you aren't wrong, I guess. I mean, Lum is kind of the star character, even if she isn't the main character. She's the character. breakout character, sure, but you wouldn't have Ursa Ataru without, it wouldn't be funny without Ataru. Oh, yeah, you need both characters. It's the dynamic between them that makes it what it is. Exactly. That's what makes it, uh, you know, like when I first got into Urusei Yatsura, of course, as a 14-year-old boy, I was attracted to sexy alien in tiger skin bikini. But the more you read about Urusei Yatsura, the more you realize that it's not Lum's story, it's a Taru's story. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, a new coffee shop opens. Um, the students skip school to go hang out there. The teachers call a conference and decide that they are against it. Uh, what I love here is that Ataru almost gets murdered <laughs> with a spear. Yeah, he's spying on the teachers' meeting, and Onsen Mark like shoves a spear through the roof, and almost and it grabs like <laughs> his shirt. Like he just barely missed it. So yeah, like he was seriously almost impaled there, yeah. which I think is a great gag. <laughs> and just like Onsen Mark's look on his face is very Looney Tunes as well, like just oh, yeah. massive, massive teeth in his mouth shouting intruder while he's trying to kill someone. Mm-hmm. Why does he have a spear? Of course he has a spear. He's on Senmark. Um, there's a pretty girl, uh, and Mendo yeah. is basically like, I support the ban, and then he sees the pretty girl and goes, no, I'm not going to sell my soul to the teachers. Yeah, there's a good gag where there are two other people, the morals committee with Mendo, the two people we saw before in the previous chapter where they were visiting all the restaurants during lunchtime, and the glasses guy is saying, like, I don't care. 
to like <laughs> what doing this task of preventing the students from going to the coffee shop. And then the other kid is like, I'm against the ban. So like only Mendo was in support of the ban. And then in the end, no one was in support because Mendo also fell for the pretty daughter of the shop owner. And it's, I, th- I think the, the moral, moral committee uh, is basically your average committee of um, one in support, one opposed and one abstained. Yeah. Which means like you're not getting anywhere with this uh, with this set of people. Yeah. Uh, of course, at the end, they decide to close down the coffee shop because the, uh, the the teachers keep interfering and basically chasing away other customers. Yeah. I mean, more specifically, he has to close down the store because he thought that the students would come to visit the shop, and he's just getting tired of. All the people from Tobika High, like, ruining his business and driving their customers away. So he was going to throw roaches on them to, like, <laughs> scare them off. But they decide not to go to the tea shop. And so instead, when the door opens, there are other customers who come in and he throws the bucket of roaches at them. And <laughs> that kind of ruins his business if he has to shut the business down. So the last panel is... Him getting his revenge... Yeah. Ordering all of this food and nine one one calls, so <laughs> he, like ambulance drivers with stretchers come and food gets delivered and the police are there, all to harass the teachers. Yeah, I feel which for I think this is guy. great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another interesting thing here is that this is actually a page. A lot of these chapters start being a page shorter than what they normally are. Interesting. So the last page of this is just a a picture of Azumi, who was the main uh, love interest in this particular chapter, the cute girl. And this just kind of happens sometimes. They There's just one page where they go one less page, and they just kind of have a splash page of a character instead. Yeah, yeah, just like a breakup page. So the next one is uh, called Locker Inspections. And this really highlights, if you thought the war between students and teachers was bad before, <laughs> it kind of hits a bit of an apex moment in this chapter. I mean, it becomes a literal war. <laughs> yeah. So Lum brings a new robot to school who is meant to carry her books. At least um, she but thinks. He's a combat robot, but actually he's not a combat robot. No, he's like a, a cheer robot. He just a cheer robot, a combat people. support robot. <laughs> yeah, and so... In this conflict between the students and teachers, the students think, oh, this guy's going to fight for us. We're totally going to win this battle with the teachers. But no, he just cheers them on and they lose. <laughs> uh, the teachers actually win this one. Like, yeah. they do locker inspections and they uh, they confiscate a whole bunch of student property uh, with the intent to bury it. Mm-hmm. This has an interesting cultural reference uh, in here. And Urusei Atsar is pretty timeless. But they actually mention or allude to Sony Walkmans. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Sony Walkmans were a massive thing uh, back in the early eighties. Uh, they were created in the seventies and they took off really big. Everyone wanted a personal cassette player, and people would get part-time jobs and they would listen to music on the go because it was a lot harder to do back then. Uh, and teachers hated them. <laughs> there is. A lot of um, references to these in the early 80s because teachers hated the fact that students could listen to their personal music and not pay attention to class, and so they wanted them out of the classroom. 
and this even happened back in my day in the in the eighties and nineties as well. Like um, personal, uh, this is before mobile phones had MP3 players in them and everything like that. Uh, that they would be banned from school because people would be listening to them in class. And what some people would do is they would grow their hair long and use like tiny little earbuds to have them in so they could hide the earbuds and listen to their music during class and have like their Walkman kind of hidden under their shirt. <laughs> uh, so I just, I just like that little reference to what was going on in schools at the time because they were like, these were a big problem. Obviously Takahashi was aware of this. Mm-hmm. So, of course, at the end of this chapter, the teachers actually win. They're going through all the student lockers. What they find in the lockers is hilarious because <laughs> there's just, like, uh, a whole bunch of, like, sporting equipment and games, and then you've just got a massive statue of a raccoon in there as well. <laughs> yeah, a tanuki with a sunflower hat or something. <laughs> just a weird statue and, that someone saved. And there the- is actually a student later on saying, oh, man, I really wanted that. Like, I, I worked a part-time job so I could be able to afford that. And Mendo goes, there's no accounting for tastes there. <laughs> like, the fact that a student would want that is pretty hilarious. Oh, yeah. Uh, chapter 16, Alien Invasion. Yeah, this is a pretty uh, significant one. one. Kind of focuses on Onsen Mark. Yeah, like Lum's friends are all kind of congregating in the class to have a class reunion with her, and Onsen Mark is getting fed up with this. He just wants his class to go back normal, so he goes to the principal to come up with a plan to get the students back in line. The principal is kind of avoiding actually doing anything actionable and is like saying oh you just get breakfast huh you're that's where you show temper why don't you eat breakfast and then he's like oh actually you know i haven't eaten breakfast you know so he's kind of annoying <laughs> onks and mark with his like kind of comments there and it basically culminates in them holding a staff meeting and then the class reunion at the same time in the conference room to onks and mark chagrin <laughs> This is funny because Onsen Mark seems to be the only one who is aware of how batshit crazy everything is around here. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to be proactive and he's trying to do something about it and he's just getting frustrated at everyone. Yeah. Like his classroom is being invaded. The principal just is accepting of the entire situation and doesn't care. And Kotatsu there and he goes, oh yeah, there's a cat that sometimes visits. Cute, isn't he? This is the first time we really get a sense of the principal's eccentric personality and his chill kind of laid back kind of attitude towards things, which I really appreciate. He's such a fun character and how odd he can be, especially later on when he holds all these weird competitions for the students to trials through. And here we see that he kind of immediately accepts that Katatsuneku's in his room and is, you know, palling around with him. So we're kind of an instant so, friendship. Principles in Japan are uh, super interesting in some ways in that um, although in in our culture, like principles of the school can often be like super scary, super authoritative people, often the the dynamic in Japan, and this isn't always true, but often it is the principal of the school is like an easygoing kind of palling around, but, you know, offers sage advice sort of guy. Hmm. And the vice principal is the one that dishes out all of the <laughs> actual discipline and corporal punishment. 
You know, I've seen that trope in a lot of manga and anime, so yeah, interesting. And as someone who used to teach in several, several schools in Japan, I can say that this is true. <laughs> like, the principle is super laid back in all the schools I ever taught at, and I was friends with some of them. And I even went back to one of my schools even after I left uh, to, to visit the students and the principal. And the principal's like, oh, you can come back anytime. This is your school. We, we loved you as a teacher. And the vice principal's just stand there. Yes, welcome back. It has been a while. And it's always that weird dynamic. And it it's very, very true that the, when you get elevated to that position, you just kind of go, well, I'm as far in life as I'm going to get. May as well take it easy. <laughs> Oh, actually, one note I do want to mention that is important about the continuity of the series that this chapter introduces is that it does establish that Benten, Oyuki, and Lum are all part of the same class when they were in middle school as kids, their childhood friends. Yes, like, that's right. Before we had known that Lum was friends with Benten and Oyuki individually, this is the first time that we've learned that Benten and Oyuki and Lum all know each other, then they were all in the same class together. And even though Ron doesn't feel feature much in this chapter in the last panel where the class reunion is being held you actually do see ron in the room she's playing mahjong with katatsu neko and a bunch of other aliens so this also does imply and establish that ron is also a part of lum's childhood class and also part of this friend group which makes sense and that dynamic that foursome is explored a lot more in later chapters Mm -hmm. which is uh, it's super interesting because they've all got their separate personalities and Ben Tenney is, of course, always the delinquent type. Yeah. And Ron is almost like the innocent bystander that kind of gets dragged along and gets into trouble with everyone else. Oh, yeah. But I love all the aliens here. The, the last panel with all of the different aliens, the snake type aliens, like the alligator type <laughs> looking gangster people. It's fantastic. Must have been so much fun to draw. Oh, yeah. Again, I love Takashi's crazy alien designs. Next, we got a Valentine's chapter. We do. And this isn't the first Valentine's chapter, of course. No, we talked about last time uh, we had that Valentine's chapter with that little girl in 10, which was really cute, too. But this one is really interesting because, you know, Ataru is going into Valentine's Day thinking he's going to get at least three chocolates. He's going to get from Sunyunobu, he's going to get from Ron, and of course he's going to get from Lum. Turns out that not getting from Shinobu. Shinobu did not get him a chocolate. And Ron isn't there. Ron's hanging out with Ray. And so he's suspecting that he'll get something from Lum, but he's dropping hints. But Lum's saying, oh, he does, I don't have any chocolate for you. That throws him for a shock. And then to rub it in further, later on, he notices that Lum does have chocolate, but instead of giving it to him, she gives it to Mendo. And so uh, at the end of the chapter, Atari's just crying in his room. <laughs> well, behind him, Lum is building a giant heart mural of chocolates to spell out. It's like in the shape of a heart, and it spells out to Darling Love. Just a super cute romantic gesture. And so the mm. chapter ends just in a really sweet way, where we see that Love really does care. He's got Atari with all these chocolates and doing something super fun and sweet to him. And Atari is just sobbing crying to sleep, mostly unaware, but I like Kazatsu Deko has this cute little smile looking at him. <laughs> so that's so it's, it's an interesting chapter, uh, and Ten is very perceptive at the end here where she says, uh, come on, Lum, like, 
Otaru's pride as a man <laughs> depends on him getting chocolate in front of other people. Yeah. And I think that's actually really perspe- perceptive because that's what Otaru wants. Like, he wants to look like he's loved and cool and all of that stuff in front mm-hmm. of his classmates. And he has to mentally kind of convince himself that, oh, you know, just because I'm not getting chocolates doesn't mean that the girls don't love me. Like, he tries to convince himself that Shinobu isn't giving her chocolate because Lum will attack her. So that well, yeah, he tries it's, to- it's super interesting here because in, in this translation, it says Lum will kill, Shinobu says Lum will kill you. In the fan translation, it was Lum would kill me or lynch me or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. And I don't know what the original Japanese is. Uh, I have to go look for it. And this is something I should probably start doing is looking for the original Japanese to see what the original translation was. Um, Whether she says Lum will kill me or Lum will kill you. Because it's kind of interesting. The way her face looks, it kind of does look like Lum would hurt me or lynch me or kill me or zap me or something like that. But she's saying Lum will kill you, which is kind of showing concern for Ataru. Yeah, and the way it plays out here makes me feel like it would have been kill you in the original just because of Ataru's dialogue saying, you know, don't worry about what Lum will do to me. You know, if you care about me, give me some chocolate. And so then Ataru resigns himself to thinking, you know, her not getting me chocolate because she's worried about me is also an expression of love. I can... Uh, be fine with that. It's okay. She cares about me. And this is this is also another chapter that just there is no last page, or, or the the chapter is one page shorter than the other ones. It's got a a splash page of of Lum and Ten at the end of Lum and her school uniform. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was a choice on Takahashi's part that she just didn't need a page, or she was restricted to that many pages for this issue. Uh, but it's interesting to see that they're not all the same length. Mm-hmm. The next one is one of your favorites, I th- Yeah, actually, one other thing I do want to mention about this chapter is that there's this scene where Ataru is talking with Sakura, really sad that Lum seemingly ha- is ignoring him and has forgotten to give him any chocolate. This scene is repurposed in an episode of the anime, which is otherwise anime original. Episode 66, Happy Birthday, My Darling. This scene with Sakura is in Uh, that episode, but the context is completely different of Lum forgetting Ataru's birthday and him being kind of sad about that instead. So it's kind of interesting. They borrowed an element of the chapter, a scene for that episode, but otherwise the rest of the chapter wasn't uh, fully adapted. Which is interesting as well, because in this chapter... Um, Sakura has no idea what Valentine's Day is. She <laughs> yeah. doesn't understand any of the significance whatsoever. But she does actually say to Ataru that she is a counselor and she is there to talk if he wants to. Yeah. And of course, Ataru immediately tries to take advantage and tries to jump her. Mm-hmm. The next chapter, uh, 18 Deadly Peril in the Classroom, which I think uh, you've mentioned a couple of times already, is 10 trying to discern what uh, a makeup class is. Everyone's ignoring him, and they throw snowballs at him after he tries to breathe fire on them. And then so Ten decides to get his revenge, uh, but everyone in the class is told to be absolutely quiet no matter what. Otherwise, they have to take a, a class over over the break. And this is another one where Onsen Marcus is flummoxed <laughs> by the staff, uh, by the sorry, by the by the students. And they will not say anything no matter what, no matter what kind of ordinance are thrown at them 
or how many people are burnt or possibly even killed. Mm-hmm. They refuse to talk because they don't want to go to school on their break. Eventually, he is won over by their conviction and is deeply moved. But that's when <laughs> he's like, okay, I'm going to do my best to teach this class because you guys are trying so hard. And then he steps in the landmine. And then the class ends <laughs> right as they're trying to get back to the lesson. And they all collapse. I like how they always say, don't talk. Like, they write to each other because they think that Onsen Mark is definitely trying to trick them. Yeah. In this case, he probably isn't. Mm-hmm. But I just love the fact that they, they are so suspicious of him. And they just know that if you know, if they do accidentally talk, then he would totally get them up for that. Mm. I just think it's super clever. So there's a well, – most of the dialogue in this is um, is mostly from Ten. Yeah. Uh, which makes it, again, very Looney Tunes-esque, sort mm. of uh, the drawings speak for themselves. Yeah. There are a lot of great visual gags. Like when Ten throws the grenade and people are just swatting it back with their books until it hits the back of the class, but it misses the trash can before it explodes, which is really great. Uh, Onsen Mark's eyes pop out several times in this chapter, which I, I love when Takahashi does this. Oh, yeah. There's some great the, wild the, the, takes. Like big, like just eyes popping out of their <laughs> sockets when they see something like super crazy happen. Uh, the next chapter, Mendo's siblings. Yeah, we got a trio of chapters introducing Mendo's sister, Ryoko. Very theatrical character, kind of signified by the fact that her assistants are all Kuroko, like stagehands in Japanese theater. Kind of hinting yeah. at that aspect and that kind of motif plays into what she convinces Ataro to do, as in like pay a kind of a Romeo and Juliet-esque uh, star-crossed couple. Kind of thing, mm. which I think is played up a little bit more in the anime version of this, the specific Shakespearean illusions in the back half of the story in the second part. But yeah, she's a really fine character and how kind of manipulative she is and how much of a prankster she is. I do love that she's got that um, that prankster element about her because you can tell she's related to Mendo and you can tell that she's just doing all this because she's bored. She has no interest in Ataru whatsoever. <laughs> And she knows that she can play Ataru like a fiddle. Mm. Uh, but he goes along with it all the way. I could have sworn that this chapter where Ryoko is introduced was in the original run of the comics by Viz. Interesting. They may have published some chapters out of order, and perhaps they just did not collect some of the chapters they did translate into graphic novels. So it's possible. I I don't like because I've read this basically three different times. It's very difficult to tell my memories apart, but I just I really remember her appearing quite earlier in the original translation, but once again I could be wrong. Mhm. Of course, she comes to deliver Mendo's Mendo lunch to Mendo 3 days by late. Oxen. Yeah, cuz <laughs> she was traveling by oxen so it took her 3 days mm. to get there. She started on Monday, she came on Wednesday, and of course the lunch is all rotted in that time. But Ataru eats it anyway, even though he's Because he's Ataru with a stomach of iron. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting dynamic uh because Mendo knows what his sister is. Uh, and he wants, despite the fact that he doesn't get along with her, he wants uh, nothing. He wants her to have nothing to do with Ataru. Oh yeah, I mean, of course, Mendo 
just hates Hitaru in general. So the thought of him yeah. being with his sister, even though his sister is such a pest to him, you know, he's still not up for that. And neither is his dad when Sminto explains that he's a worse womanizer than even he is. <laughs> I love the expression on his face in that. But uh, <laughs> this is interesting because uh, Mendo's claustrophobia is also exhibited to the rest of the class for the first time in this. Yeah. Uh, in this chapter as well. So the rest of the class know that he has a, a fear of of uh, the dark and a fear of enclosed spaces. Yeah, actually Shinobu found this out earlier in this volume in the chapter where they visit the Mendo house and Mendo's dad trapped him in the room alone because he first yeah. traps him and Shinobu in the room together and Mendo doesn't freak out. And then he pulls Shinobu out and traps Mendo back in it again and Mendo freaks out. So Shinobu sees firsthand, oh, when Mendo is alone, he has this claustrophobic. He has he's afraid of confined spaces. I love how vain he is. That if he's if a woman is there, like he won't show any fear whatsoever mm-hmm. because he's that self centric. Yeah. Um, but you do later on in the series um, find out why he has a fear of the dark and claustrophobia. Oh yeah. And it's basically his own fault due to time travel. <laughs> oh, self inflicted trauma. So the next chapter is fantastic. It's uh, Mendo Sibling Part 2. This is where you find out that um, you, you kind of see his mum and dad for the first time. His mum is completely silent. His dad looks like him, but with a older with a mustache. And well, we actually saw them earlier. Uh, you know, again, they visited the Mendo house, but actually his mom showed up even earlier than that in the chapter where oh, they yes. had the yes, that's parents' right. day and she got in that scuffle with you know, Lum's mom and stuff. So we've seen them before. Yeah, that's right. We have, yeah. I think it's um, the Mendo family all interacting with each other Yeah, is what I like here. Him with a mustache smoking a pipe is such a <laughs> a CEO boss coffee thing to do. If you've ever seen the a boss coffee can of Japanese coffee, it is like a guy, like a middle-aged man with a mustache looking important. <laughs> uh, and... They, they they talk up about how dangerous Ataru is and how they've got everything ready, and he just walks in the door. Mm-hmm. Because they've seen him before, he just kind of walks in and goes, uh, good evening, and just walks in. Yeah, the guards recognize him, so fantastic. they let him in, which is funny. <laughs> so, of course, um, the militia, the personal militia is mobilized against Ataru, filled with tanks. Lum is there, who has basically fed off the electric uh, fence. The electrified fence. And she is really enjoying it. She says, yum, while given like a kind of a flexing pose, which is really funny. So whenever you see something like this, it's the Peko-chan face Mm, uh, with Lum with her eyes closed with a tongue at the corner of her mouth. That's the Peko-chan. Yeah, that pops up a few times in this volume Mm. too, which is really fun. It does. It's a cultural reference there. The tanks are immobilized against Ataru. All of the guards are idiots, and um, the Kuroko, uh, who are Ryoko's personal guard, help him as much as they can, which makes sense because they're stagehands, and this is meant to be Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and of course, he does make it up the tower. Ryoko helps, and at the very last minute before they're about to embrace, uh, Lum catches him, and she's still electrified from feeding off the electricity. And basically zaps him half to death. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fantastic chapter that Ryoko is just playing up the entire time. Mm-hmm. 
Chapter 21, Hello Sailor Suits. Yep, continuing off the Ryoko chapters, this time Ryoko is plotting and hypnotizing Atari seemingly. And Mendo and Lum and the rest are trying to figure out what's happened with Ataru because he's come to class all tired out and exhausted. And so they're wondering, what is Ryoko doing with him? And they find out the truth at uh, her private school, seeing that he is basically acting out as Ryoko's dog for her class as a kind of a test monkey for her hypnotism skills and then the big reveal is that actually she never had hypnotism powers Atari was just doing it of his own free will he was basically chasing girls around and biting at their skirts and pretending to be a dog so he could hang around them which is just it's such an Ataru thing to do the other the other gag by three in this one is when Lum has Ataru on a leash, <laughs> effectively calling him a dog, and he gets kidnapped anyway. <laughs> and then he has him strung up like a monkey, like around the shoulders. And he goes, what am I, a monkey? <laughs> and then the next time, he's actually got like a harness, like a horse. And he goes, I'm not a horse. <laughs> and he still gets kidnapped anyway each time, which I think is a is a fantastic visual gag. And then at the end, he's punished by sitting in the corner, reflecting on his behavior, also kind of collared up like a dog to a post <laughs> for his tardiness. Ataru is very dog-like, I think. Oh, yeah. And I love that aspect about this. <laughs> yeah. And, like, even Ryoko at the at the end of this chapter was, who is usually the prankster, realized that she was being tricked. Yeah. And when they all realize that Ataru is just biting at their skirt because he's a massive pervert, well, they all start freaking out. Yeah, I mean, Ryoko wants to be the manipulator. She wants to be the one in control, the one playing the jokes on people. But here she's like, oh, no, I was the one who was tricked, which is really great. It's something very rare to see Ryoko kind of one up like that. So It's true. And I think it's good that Ataru does get the one up sometimes. Mm. Like, uh, he's such a a lovable loser character. But sometimes, you know, he just he out manipulates anyone. By being the loser. Mm, yeah. Once again, uh, it's at his expense. The last chapter, A Gift from Ten, chapter 22, uh, yeah. is uh, is uh, Ten has a love catch ball, mm-hmm. which basically shows people who they are meant to marry. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting group of characters hanging out with each other, Lum, Ron, Shinobu, and Sakura, like... Up mm. to this point, you wouldn't really call these characters friends, so it is kind of strange that they're all hanging out, but it does lead it to is, a, a really weird, yeah. funny scenario where they all basically see, you know, the other's crushes as their own potential future suitor. Lum sees Ray, Ron sees Ataru, Ataru, Shinobu sees Sabame, and Sakura sees both Ataru and Mendo. <laughs> the big twist is the Love Catch Ball is defective, and it actually shows who people would be most unhappy to marry. Or actually, it wasn't. Yeah. It was like a completely different product in general. It was like a trick ball, a trouble catch ball. So, yeah, misunderstandings happen. It's very awkward as people are trying to avoid talking about who they saw because neither Rod or Lum want to make each other mad. And Shinobu 
is actually asking questions to Sakura about her relationship with Sabami and like kind of interested in the idea. And meanwhile, Sakura is completely disgusted and worried about the idea of ending up with both Mendo and Ataru. I will say that I think she's very close-minded about, I guess, polyamory, but still, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think that would be a great relationship between the three of them. No, it wouldn't. And it, I just, I love the fact that Ataru is spying on them, and then Mendo's joins Ataru to spy <laughs> on them, and then Tsubame is also just kind of just oh, yeah. turns up and they go, hello, hello, hi. They're all peeking in from the window. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe none of the characters inside noticed them. Because, <laughs> like, in the very first panel of the chapter, we see everyone seated around the table, and you see Ataru with his face pressed against the window. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I do love this. I-, I love that, like, Shinobu is kind of open to the fact that uh, Tsubame might be her destiny. Mm-hmm. So she's, like, going, can't fight fate. May as well find out more about him. Yeah. And he's like going, I don't understand anything that's going on with you people. What What is happening? Right up to the very end of the chapter, I don't think so. He understands what the heck is going on. Uh, it's interesting because Tsubame is like, is this kind of, he looks cool when you first meet him, but he's just as much of an idiot as everyone else. Yeah, he's a pretty dorky guy, really. He's kind of- uh, He is. Never you know why loop. Sakura loves him, but at the same time, he's like, he's pretty dull, pretty dim. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty good looking, he's pretty kind, but yeah, not the brightest tool in the shed. <laughs> so that was a, it was a, as we said before, it's a very good volume, volume oh, six. Yeah. It really focuses on a shift towards the classroom mm-hmm. where a lot of this stuff tends to happen because I think this is where people congregate. Takahashi was having more fun with the characters, like the teachers especially with Onsen Mark and the war that they have to wage on the students of Tomobiki High, but also 2-4, which is which class they're in. Which is also interesting because 2-4, 4 in Japanese, is a reoccurring theme in Urusei Yatsura as well, because when Ataru always has the number 4 when he's in his athletic uniform to go after Lum, because four is an unlucky number in Japanese, because it it's a she, sometimes, or more often it's yon, but the original is she, which can also mean death. Mm-hmm. So them being in class two four is not an accident. <laughs> it's it's very purposeful. Oh yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, Onsen Mark is an interesting character because he's the only one who can control that class to any small degree. <laughs> I mean, you need to have someone as stubborn as the students in order to keep those guys in line. Which is, it's interesting, again, that Onsen's, Onsen Mark's name is never, hasn't yeah. been called out yet. He hasn't been named. And I'm kind of disappointed because of all the translation that's happened so far where they call him Hot Spring Symbol or whatever it was. Yeah, I am... Getting interested in when he's actually going to be addressed by name because for as big of a character as he's been, he has not been addressed by name. You know, actually, I do want to point out. I noticed another recurring 
teacher character that popped up during this volume that also I don't think is ever named, but he's also another character like Onsen Mark that has like symbols on his coat. He wears like a black coat with I think uh oh, yes, a thunder yeah. symbol on his shirt. I know the character, but he doesn't make a whole bunch of appearances. No. Like he he's kind of around yeah, just in like the big chaos chapters where it's teachers and students. Yeah, he has a Raijin symbol on his shirt. So, yeah, that's interesting. It's a short-lived minor character, but I noticed him pop up a few times in here. I do love the fact when they're all fighting, like they're physically fighting with the teachers. <laughs> it's not like an innocent sort of like banter back and forth. They're physically trying to beat the crap out of each other. Oh, yeah, it's a rumble. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that. So, I, I guess Volume 6 does kind of stay with us and uh this sort of uh new theme of everything happens around the school because that's where all the characters are kind of continues on for Urusei Atsara for a while oh, in, yeah. in this particular form i mean i think the series has really hit stride at this point and i think this was one of the funniest collections of the series yet i mean i had so many big laughs reading this volume and like, this is the Yours Yatsura I really love, the kind of stories I really love, the just sheer utter chaos. All the characters have really been established at this point. The dynamics are set in stone. Like, we mm. are just rolling with some great stories now. So I'm so, so excited to be at this point. And there are still a, a couple of characters um, who still need to turn up oh, to yeah. kind of make the cast complete. Yeah, we have a big one. So to speak. That... I think we'll finally get in Volume 8 this year. So I'm looking forward to her. I think so, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I really like this stuff because after you get over the fact that Lum is a pretty alien girl who's in love with someone, you can't keep that particular story going forever. Uh, and so Takahashi really branched out to other characters, other scenarios, and really kind of filled the universe. It wasn't just like, will they, won't they sort of romance comedy anymore. It was more to do with the wackiness and the setting that kind of happens around Tomobiki High. Mm -hmm. So I suppose we should move on to, we've already gone for an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we should get into our other topic about collecting cells. Yeah, so animation cells, I'll just do a brief summary on what they are. In the time before computers, we used to have to do it on cellulite. I'll sell you, God, <laughs> brain's failing me. Basically, big plastic sheets. Uh, you draw the outline over the top and then you paint it behind. And you would have to do this uh, for many times just to make one second of animation. Oh, yeah. 24 frames per second. Yep. And that's how it's been going. Basically, that's how it started and that's how it was going until the early 21st century. So what would happen at the end of a production is that you would have boxes and boxes and boxes of the celluloid, all of these drawings that basically made up the animation. So there are some people who kept theirs, um, but more often than not, they were a waste of space because the everything had already been recorded and we don't need to store them anymore. Uh, so... Animation cell collecting has been a thing in Japan for quite a while. Uh, one of the more famous animation cell stories in the West was that uh, when Disneyland opened in 1955, 
one of the things that they gave out to the people who were entering the park were cells from the original Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Mm. So they would actually hand these out, but people didn't know what they were. (laughs) So the first animated feature-length film of all time, they were handing out all of these original production stills, production cells. People didn't know what they were and just threw them in the trash. So it is actually super difficult to get uh, and super expensive to get any cells from that original production now. And there are stories of in the Disney production offices of people scooting down the aisles or the hallways of Disney uh, animation studio on the cells of Dumbo (laughs) because they were so slippery underneath. So (laughs) it kind of shows what people thought about these things after they'd already been committed to film. Yeah, they did not realize they were holding art in their hands. Uh, and how valuable no. they would be uh, to a huge collector's market. Uh, Disney sells go for a lot of money online. Oh, yeah. They are very, very much collector's items. I don't own any Disney animation cells, but I think – I'm not like a really big Disney fan. I think the only Disney property that I would want a sell from is from The Adventures of the, of the Gummy Bears. Oh, yeah. Which was a – a classic Disney afternoon show. I mean, kind of the real beginning of the Disney TV renaissance, uh, even before DuckTales. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It was the show that preceded DuckTales and was kind of their first hit. I love Gummy Bears, so that would probably be the one that I would want to sell from. However, they also go for massive amounts of money online. Uh, so I kind of got into cell collecting, not by accident, but um, I after you start off in some doing something like this, like, oh, wow, I remember that. That looks really cool. I'm going to buy something. Like, oh, I've got a little piece of the show in my hands. Uh, it gets addictive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I did start out by collecting uh, Urusei Yatsura cells back in when I was living in Japan. But I think the very first cell that I ever, ever got was a Runma cell. Oh, nice. And I got it off eBay and I got it for like $20 or something. Whoa. And it was Runma kind of like backing off from something with like a surprised look on his face. That's really cool. Yeah. And I had that for years and I had it in a frame and everything like that. And I thought it was super cool because I was really into Runma for a while as well. But when I got to Japan and I figured out, oh, you can get cells here and how much they were and kind of the places that you could get them for cheaper versus the more expensive ones, I started to, oh, wow, this is a Rosayatsu. I'm going to get this one. I'm going to get this one. I'm going to get this one. And so I actually have a amassed a rather large collection of cells now. <laughs> Some of the other TV shows that I have cells from are Lupin. Oh, nice. I have two cells from Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, one of which is Misato, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I have a cell from uh, Maho Tsukai Tai, which was an OVA series. The Magic Users Club, I think it is oh, in English. Oh, yeah, I know that. Which I, I love that series. It's a bit etchy, but I, I just have a fondness for it. Mm-hmm. Back to the Future, the animated series. I have a DeLorean Whoa. of that. <laughs> and I actually have one of Captain Planet. Nice. Uh, it's not. It's from Captain Planet, but it's it's of uh, Kwame and Wheeler, I think it is. Okay, cool. And I, I have a plan. 
I, I shouldn't say the plan out loud, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that I want uh, the guy who who played Kwame was the same guy who played oh, the guy with the visor from Star Trek Deeps, uh, sorry, The Next Generation. I can't remember the actor's name or or the character's name. Hmm. But he's the he was the guy who was blind and had a visor over his face. Uh, and I want to get him to sign that cell and give it to my friend because he loves Star Trek The Next Generation, but he hates Captain Planet. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Those are going to do some mixed emotions. But that's an awesome Yeah, that's exactly gift. why I want to do it. Can I ask, like, what the Lupin cells you have are? Like, from which series? I only have one Lupin cell. Mm. It's uh, what you would classify as a pink jacket. Oh, yeah, pink jacket. So... Often people, when they talk about Lupin, will talk about the colour of his jacket from what series he's from, because his look doesn't really change other than the jacket colour he has. Well, the style of that series is a little looser uh, in terms of its animation, the shapes. Like, it, it definitely does look a bit of a departure from the previous two. Yeah, that's true. I've been watching Lupin a lot more recently. Uh, Lupin is funny, but it's very much in the Inspector Gadget sort of uh, form, very formulaic. Oh yeah, it's like a Scooby Doo kind of formula, you know. I would compare it to that, mm. especially considering they make these yearly features, kind of like Scooby Doo has these yearly features. Like it's a formula that mm. you can really repurpose really well because the characters are so iconic and fun. There is some really interesting stuff done with. Lupin in recent years with recent series that I think is really cool, though. Like Fujiko Mine and then the recent two new series for Blue Jacket. I should really watch some of those. I've been going through... So I, I kind of skipped the first season mm. and moved straight to the second season where things were kind of more stable and established. Yeah. I mean, Red Jacket is more iconic. It's from the 70s and there is a lot of very inappropriate stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we're happens. talking about Ataru and how his behavior has not aged great. Lupin also is the same kind of character who is engaging in a lot of sexual harassment and a lot of predatory behavior played as comedy. Oh, yes. But um, also, like, uh, there was there was a, an episode about Nazi Germany and everyone yeah. was just doing the Hitler salute and Heil Hitler the whole <laughs> time and it was very deeply uncomfortable. I mean, at least those were the that. bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> they actually skipped playing that one on American TV. I mean, they dubbed it, but they did not play that on Adult Swim when they aired Red Jacket. No. I I didn't actually know that Lupin had played in America. Oh, yeah. Uh, Adult Swim aired like the first 26-ish episodes of Red Jacket, and they dubbed the first 78, the first half of Red Jacket. And then uh, over 15 years later, they've aired both Blue Jacket series, both part four and part five. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So the cell I have from Lupin is is a pink jacket. It's him leaping over a rock. Um, but the cell I got, uh, good news, I got it for 100 yen. <laughs> so a dollar. That's really uh, good. Bad news was the cell was already damaged. Uh, so no cells... Wonder. The only way you can really damage a cell is if there is a cut in it. And, mm. of course, it being plastic, the cut will just kind of rip through. The good news was that the rip was on the side of the cell. So, basically, I was able to cut it out to a postcard size and put it into a frame. Hey, that's really good. Uh, so, 
I've been super interested in, in animation cell collecting because, as I said before, it's like owning a little piece of a show that you love. Like, it was used in the production, and you have, like, a piece of that. So, uh, my favorite cell is one where Ataru is hugging Lum, and I got it once again very cheap. I just happened to come across it when I was in Nakano Broadway about 15 years ago. And it is from the episode where Ataru gets duplicated because he ate some manju. Uh, that Cherry was trying to bury the world's evil. Yeah, the first duplicate Ataru kind of story. That's in Mm. Volume 2. So he's got his jacket open, and he's got his red shirt underneath, and he's like saying, I want to go back to Lum's planet. Mm -hmm. And so I've got this really good cell of Lum and Ataru hugging. And one of the reasons I love that cell is not only because Ataru and Lum are hugging, it's great, but also because that is the first videotape that I bought the very first episode of Ursa Yatsara I think I ever saw uh, was from a video I bought in Canberra back in 1996 or something like that, or 1995. Whoa, that's really special that you were able to get a cell from that wary episode. Exactly, and it was just completely by coincidence. So there are a um, a couple of ways to get cells. Um, the first, which uh, is probably the way that most foreigners would be able to get them is from online auction sites. Of course, eBay is going to be more expensive. And the alternative is Yahoo Auction. So Yahoo um, is what they call it in Japan, is uh, basically their version of eBay because eBay never really took off there. And you have so many choices and so many interesting things that come up for sale on there. And there are a lot of animation sales. And they're usually cheaper to buy them there rather than on the foreign auction sites. But the downside is that you would need to, in addition to buying it, you would need to engage a company to basically, after they bid on the auction for you, they send it to that company and then they send it to you. So it's a kind of a roundabout way of doing things. I'm very fortunate in that I effectively have uh, an address in Japan, which is my wife's address. So. If I do get anything from Yahoo Ok, uh, basically it just gets sent, sent to this address in Japan in Guma, and then I just have to wait until the next time I go over there, which is usually once or twice a year. So I think um, the other the other ways are if you are in Japan, uh, there is a very famous anime um, chain store, effectively called Mandarake. Have you heard of this before? I haven't. So Mandarake is basically a store that has lots and lots of Japanese pop culture, uh, and they are kind of like a, a used bookstore, but they also have figures and toys and uh, anime paraphernalia and manga paraphernalia and idol paraphernalia as well. And there are many of these stores uh, all over Tokyo. There's a, a famous one in Shibuya. Uh, which is like down, it's like a basement store at the bottom of a building. And most of the shops in Nakano Broadway, which is a very famous uh, place to get anime goods in Japan, uh, most of the shops in there are mandarake. So they do have a specialized store 
for cells in Nakano Broadway. Uh, and it's just basically you have to get lucky. So sometimes you will see stuff from Ghibli and from other famous series, and they're kind of priced according to demand. So you might see a cell of Lum, uh, and it might be like $100 or the equivalent of, and you might see one of Mendo, and it's only like $10 because it doesn't have Lum in it. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things about buying cells, I will say, is if you are after Urusei Yatsara cells without Lum in them, they are much, much cheaper. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> so I have many cells of Ataru uh, because you get them for like 10 to $15 because it's not Lum. I have quite a few of Lum as well, but a lot of those I just got very lucky with. Mm. Especially of her with her eyes open in her bikini. Those go for the highest amount of money. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I bet there isn't a whole lot of problems getting cells featuring cherry in them. You know, interestingly enough, I only have one cell with cherry in it. Hmm. And what's little that? Um, it is one where he's holding a bottle. Um, I can't, and he's got a lump on his head. <laughs> and it was a, a damaged cell as well that I got for like a hundred yen. And I ended up cutting around it and putting it in a smaller frame. But there is there was one that had onsen mark and the principal in one frame, and it was a hundred yen or two hundred yen, and I didn't buy it. Oh, why'd you pass? And on? I feel stupid now because I was buying a whole bunch of other cells. Mm -hmm. So there is another another store that specifically sp specialises in cells in Nakano Broadway called Apple Symphony. Mm -hmm. The guy, uh, it's always the same guy. He speaks absolutely no English whatsoever. <laughs> Everything in the store is in binders with the Japanese name on it. So you basically have to know a bit of Japanese to be able to go in there and look for the thing that you want, or at least be able to ask him. And they have about three binders full of Urusei Yatsura stuff. And it does change every time that I'm there. Um, of course, the Lum sales go for a very large amount of money. Shinobu cells also go for a pretty large amount of money. Um, I think after Lum Run is probably the most popular one. Like they're very, very sought after. Yeah, I imagine all the cells featuring the female characters in the series are probably pretty lucrative. They are. Some of the, and he of course has ones that uh, are in like behind glass cases. Mm. And last time we were there, he had the one where Lums was remembering Ray and Ran, and it was kind of drawn in a crayon style oh. from the anime. Uh, and those were commanding six to seven hundred dollars, or the equivalent thereof, for each individual cell. Wow. I mean, especially because that one is in such a different style. Yeah, I'd imagine that is a particularly special one. Yeah, it's... Um, a friend of mine uh, who will listen to this came very close to buying them. <laughs> Unfortunately, that shop does not do credit cards. It's cash wow. only because a, a lot of Japan is, a, is still a cash-based society. Yeah, so I have gotten many things from this guy over the years. Um, a lot of uh, Urusei Yatsara cells, especially of the some of the lesser characters and a lot of Ataru cells. 
but he, this guy knows his stuff. And I've been going there for about 15 years, so he recognizes me. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I walk in, he goes, Oh, it's you again. You're a regular. I kind of am, at least for a few times once a year. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things, uh, one thing that I should also mention about cell collecting is that uh, there is what we call a keyframe or a Genga. So the keyframe is on a like a plain piece of white paper or, you know, 35 years later, you know, brownish paper <laughs> due to the age, where the original sketch of what is going to be put onto the cell is, and it will have notes on like what the color is. Uh, so it'll have the outline and color and maybe some notes about what is supposed to be happening or what's going to happen in the next cell. Uh, and so it is good if you can get a Genga and a cell together because mm-hmm. having the Genga means that you also have the original, original sketch from that scene as well. I have a Genga from the very first episode of Urusei Yatsura where mm-hmm. Lum electrocutes Ataru for the first time towards <laughs> the end. Wow. Uh, but I don't have the cell, so I've only got the Genga for that. <laughs> Still, that's a really great scene to have a Genga of. Yeah, it's it's one of my prized possessions. That one actually. That's um, if if my house is burning, oh, no. to the ground, I will grab that and I will grab the Lum hugging a Taru cell, and that's probably what I'd take out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is replaceable, but these things to me are not. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are some some places you can buy cells. Uh, but what I should say is that cell collecting has really arced up in the past decade or so. It is becoming much more popular and they are becoming seen as pieces of art and especially people want to collect something from a television, animated television show that they love. And to that end, you can kind of see the way price charting that these things have gone up. But more importantly, cells aren't made anymore. It's all done on computers. Hmm. So these are objects of things that you just uh, are going to only become rarer and rarer and rarer and rarer as time goes on. A good way of basically preserving your cells is to put them in a, a shadow box, which is like a frame that has space behind it so you can kind of display the cell at the front and then you can put the Genga or whatever background you want behind it and store it in a temperature-controlled, well, I say temperature-controlled, out of the sun, basically. Hmm. <laughs> because at the end of the day, these are made of paint and marker, and they will degrade over time. So if you put it in a, a place where the, the back of the cell isn't touching anything, and out of the sun, they should last a lot longer. Hmm. So I think that's probably my advice for um, for collecting cells. If you are interested, if you see one you really like and it's a bit expensive and you go, should I, shouldn't I? My advice is jump on it. (laughs) Yeah. Even if it is a little bit expensive. Um, Over the years, I've amassed quite a collection. I've displayed a lot of them. And I think I've actually donated half of my collection. Hmm. Just to members of Lum Squad and people that uh, I've met over the years because... I was in a very fortunate position when I was living in Japan that I was able to come across so many of these great things and I was able to just get them sometimes very cheaply. So I kind of wanted to share the love a little bit, I I guess you could say. Nice. 
How many souls do you think you've collected over the years total? Oh, total. Um, I probably have over between 20 and 30 Urusayatsara cells. Wow. And I've probably donated about 10 of those. Between, yeah, between about 7 and 10, I've donated those to other people. The original person who started off the Daily Lum, uh, a friend of mine called Erica, who's no longer on Twitter, I ended up donating to her like a really good one of Ataru and a really good one of Shinobu mm. as basically as a, as, a, as a thank you for kind of getting all of this started. And uh, I think very well deserved, especially in that particular case. But these, yeah, it's, it, it's good just to see these things and to have a, a piece of the show and a piece of history to kind of display. And a lot of people I know are after the Holy Grail, which is a signed, a, a picture of Lum that has been done and signed by Rumiko Takahashi. Whoa. Unfortunately, there are a lot of forgeries out there. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be wary of tricksters. Yeah. Uh, they do, they come up on Yahoo Ok a lot. They don't go for insane amounts of money, but they go for large amounts of money because they can't be verified. And Takahashi does do these. Like, she will, like, draw a quick picture of Lum, she will sign it, and she will give it to people occasionally. Uh, but if you can't verify it, it's very, very difficult. I think one of the few in the Western uh, fandom community is in the hands of Matthew Sweet, who is a musician, I do believe. Oh. Who had Lum in one of his music videos in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. Nice. So I think he actually does own a signed picture of Lum, <laughs> much to the jealousy of the rest of the community. Mm-hmm. Do you own any animation cells yourself? Unfortunately, I do not. I would love to collect cells myself one day, but sadly, I don't own any yet. Is there any that you would particularly want from any series or, oh, come or on. any particular episode from Urusei Atsura? will want from any Rumiko Takahashi series. From your Seiyatsura in particular, you know, a scene from the episode with Nozomi, episode 157, yeah, 157, I Love Dark Sincerity. You know, one of those scenes would be amazing, a scene from, of course, episode 44, uh, After You've Gone, that'd be amazing, you know, the iconic, iconic episodes, iconic scenes. Those particular cells, they come up very, very rarely for, for 44. Yeah. on Yahoo Walk, and they always command massive amounts of money. Oh, I imagine. Because I think that in the Japanese consciousness of, of Urusei Atsura fans is still the favorite of all time. Yeah, yeah. I bet they're in high demand because those are like the most iconic scenes and episodes. I'm very fortunate in the fact that I have a Genga from of Nozomi from that episode. Oh, yeah. So it's actually like a big, it's bigger than normal of her and with a whole bunch of notes about what color her eyes should be. <laughs> and it's got everything. It's got her eyes except her mouth. Oh. So obviously an establishing shot. So I'm very, very fortunate. And I got it for like 200 yen. Wow, that's great. Because they just didn't – they knew it was from Urusei Yatsura, but they didn't know particularly who the character was. So they went, eh, not important, 200 <laughs> yen. That's fine. Oh, if only they knew. I think Nazumi's a fan favorite. Uh, she definitely is. 
All right. Well, I think that uh, should take us to the end of uh, Lum Squad. Yeah, it was a good uh, size episode, episode this time. We had a lot to say about Volume 6 and a lot to say about cell collecting. And I'm sure we'll dive into more aspects of fandom and collecting in future episodes, too. But yeah, uh, there was a lot to say. And since these are monthly podcasts, it's worth getting them all out there. We're, uh, we're we're not going to run out of content, that's for sure. Oh, most definitely not, <laughs> especially since, and we forgot to mention it at the top of the show, but Discotech did announce last month that they have licensed oh, yes. the remaining Yurusei Atsura movies, all the ones that they had, didn't have yet. They had Beautiful Dreamer, and now they've got the rest of them, and they're all going to be coming to Blu-ray, and they'll be streaming, hopefully, later this year. Most probably on Retro Crush, considering Retro Crush has Avatar, is basically love, <laughs> despite them only having Beautiful Dreamer, so I'm sure they're going to hungry for some more Yurisiyatsu content. It's very interesting the way that Beautiful Dreamer is often picked up, and nothing else is. Yeah, I mean, Beautiful Dreamer is, like, the most iconic part of the franchise, I guess, for international audiences. I'm sure the attachment of Mamoroshi's name helps in that, I'm sure, but mm. yeah, I mean, we're getting the rest of the movies, and hopefully we'll get the series itself following. I mean, Discotech re-released Ola City Hunter, and now Ola City Hunter is oh, yes, streaming on Crunchyroll, literally every part of the Sydney Hunter franchise. So if they can do that for Sydney Hunter, I'm sure they can do that for years the outset. I'd be very interested to see if they would do a retranslation or try and buy the translation off Animigo. Oh. Because the Animigo translation is very, very, very good. Yeah, I think they would try to if it's at all possible. I think they'd work yeah. with uh, the head of Animigo to maybe get those uh, subtitle tracks. But yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I am at ProdTally on Twitter, and I do the Daily Lum. And how about you? You can find me at LumRomyasha on Twitter, LumRomyasha on variety places like Amateur Revelation Atlas, wherever there's a LumRomyasha that you can find me. You can also read my manga reviews on all-comic.com. we got a lot of books coming in and a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more reviews on there. You can also find my other podcast, Manga Mavericks, on there. And follow that at Manga Mavericks on Twitter or at Manga underscore Mavericks on Twitter. And we're on every, you know, podcast platform you can think of. And we're a podcast that explores manga to medium as an industry. And we've done a ton of great series <laughs> retrospectives and interviews with people working in the industry. We recap a news, holding discussion topics, doing a lot of great stuff. So definitely check the show out if you're interested in the wide world of manga and what's out there. But also, if you It's wanna, a very good show. Thank you. And... Lum Squad is now available on its own feed on a bunch of different mm-hmm. podcasts, platforms of choice. Yeah, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Anchor. Tons of places now. We're getting listeners and getting subscribers. And yeah, look for Lum Squad in your podcatcher of choice and it'll be there and subscribe to us, rate and review us. Uh, we got some five-star ratings already, which is really great. But yeah, leave us Thank more ratings much. and reviews. That really helps the show gain visibility and get out there more. And if you have any questions for us, if you have any comments, suggestions for what you want to see us talk about and cover, you can send that our way on our email, lumsquadpot at gmail.com, or you can tweet them at us, and we're at lumdasquad on Twitter. So definitely follow us on there. And yeah. Or just yell at me in the street. That happens sometimes. <laughs> 
Yeah. And... I'll answer your questions. <laughs> yeah. And... Yeah, so I'm glad that we've got, like, the feed up and running on Twitter. You know where to find us. And we're excited to do the show more regularly again. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to yeah. continuing to talk about more Yurisiyatsu. And this is a really exciting time to be Yurisiyatsu fan, a Rumiko Takahashi fan in general. Like, I, I think I have some plans to talk about even more Takahashi stuff in the future because there's so much coming out. So, yeah, keep posted and thank you guys so much for listening and we will yeah. see you next time. Patane.